Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide and the political director for Emerge America. Today, I'm so excited to be talking to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. In 2018, Congresswoman Presley broke the glass ceiling when she became the first woman of color to represent Massachusetts in Congress. Before that, she broke barriers when she became the first woman of color to serve on the Boston City Council. A few weeks ago, Darren Sands from BuzzFeed News reached out to me because he was writing an article on the Congresswoman and he wanted my thoughts. The first thing that came out of my mouth was, well, she's a real one. He asked me, well, what do you mean by that? I reminded him, she was the first woman of color to serve on the Boston City Council. She is now the first woman of color to represent Massachusetts and Congress. That is not an easy feat. You have naysayers, you have doubters, but the fact is she did it. And we as women of color know that for her to achieve that, that there was a lot of sacrifice and you have to be a real dynamic woman to be able to accomplish what she's done. Today, I'm excited to talk to her more about her journey and the amazing knowledge that she is going to drop during this episode. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic. Great. So my first question for you is, you just have such an accomplished political career. When did you decide that a life of service in politics was for you? Well, you know, I have to start at the very beginning. And so uh, I credit my mother for that. My mother was a super voter, uh, civically engaged, um, a tenants' rights organizer, a social worker, uh, active in our church. Um, she held many jobs uh, to make ends meet uh, while she was raising me alone. But she told me there's a difference between your job and your work. And so although she had jobs, everything from being a, a legal secretary to uh, being a slot attendant on a casino boat <laughs> to, uh, as I said, being a tenants' rights organizer uh, with the Urban League of Chicago and then later a social worker for youth and also for um, our elderly. What she considered to be her work was the work of community empowerment, uh, mobilization, and advancement. And uh, it really planted a seed. And she often uh, told me or reminded me that to those who much is given, much is required. And that's really where it all began. We hear you speak so much about your mother on the House floor when you're championing legislation, and you can just see how much she has impacted you and your career choices. Well, you know, I miss my mother uh, every hour of every day. I'm an only child. And although I've been fortunate to have um, uh, many positive uh, influencers in my life who I, I've known personally and those for whom I haven't, but have felt mentored and inspired by their example. Um, without question, my mother has been the most formidable influence in my life. I like to say she gave me my roots and my wings. And I, I miss her, but um, I, I do hope that every day I am delivering a public love letter to her both in my words and also in my uh, my legislative and, and activist deeds. That is so beautiful. For me, the first time I was able to meet you in person after fangirling from afar for several years was when you spoke at our Emerge America event at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. And when it came to running for office, you said, Lord, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. And the room cheered and broke out in applause 
And for me and the other women of color in the room, it really resonated. You became the first woman of color to serve on the Boston City Council. You are now the first Black woman to represent Massachusetts in Congress. And for confidence, research shows that women start to lose confidence as early as age seven. So for you, where does your confidence come from? Because when I see you on the House floor, I just see this strong, powerful woman who is there to get things done. And by a lot of the memes that we see on the internet after some testimonies, people know that you are not there for the play play. Well, Ashanti, I would say it takes... Uh, one strong Black woman to know another. So, you know, I'll, I'll share a, a quick story. I remember um, I was attending an event for a leader in our community who was retiring and I had been door knocking all day. And um, I didn't feel that I was dressed appropriately for the event. And so I was hesitant to enter. And uh, I approached the, uh, the head table and apologized that I was dressed so casually for the occasion and the sisters. And I said to her, you look so beautiful. I'm sorry that I'm not dressed appropriately. And she said, I'm simply a reflection of you. And so Ashanti, I just want to extend that to you uh, and say, I'm very humbled uh, and encouraged that you, you con- consider me to be a bold and confident woman. I certainly uh, think, think that of you. And I thank you for uh, everything that you are doing to advance the cause and to empower women from every walk of life. And Uh, I was very proud to be a founding board member of Emerge Massachusetts. Uh, And I'm so proud of the track record and the legacy of Emerge America um, because it has had a very high success rate of graduates of the program, of alum who have gone on to be elected uh, to office on the city, state, and federal level. And that has everything to do with your laboring and love. And so I just want to say thank you to you. Uh, so far as is, is my real confidence, you know, I think we, we all suffer from uh, a little imposter syndrome and, and, and worry every day about being found out. And uh, there's a level of uh, bravado, uh, you know, in the confidence that we project at times. Um, in order for me to do this work uh, the way that I, I aim to, it means that I have to allow myself to be very vulnerable. Um, I do a lot of truth telling. I do a lot of um, revealing. Uh, I'm very transparent about my own life uh, hardships and trauma and uh, struggles because I know that my story is not a unique one. That's why I share it. It's not that I think it's extraordinary. It's that uh, the challenges and hardships that my family experienced are the story for millions more. And so I I stand in that truth, allowing myself to be vulnerable, to create space and dignity for others to know that uh, I see them, I hear them. And that's probably uh, the most confident thing that I do is allow myself to be vulnerable. Um, But I certainly have my moments in my days where I don't feel very confident at all. I think um, confidence and self-esteem is not an inevitability. It's a journey. And I think that there's small muscle that you build along the way. And, you know, each achievement, each hardship fortifies you that much more. To your point about uh, girls as young as seven beginning to, to lose their confidence, when I was a Boston city councilor, I would often visit our Boston public schools. And I represented the entire city of Boston. And I would, just to be interactive with the kids, I would ask them, Uh, Would any of you venture to guess how many people live in the city of Boston? And all the boys' hands would immediately shoot up. 
and they would um, loud and proud rattle off astronomical numbers, a billion or, you know, or, or woefully low numbers, you know, uh, uh, 300. I mean, just, and the girls wouldn't raise their hands at all. And I know why that is. It's because girls are afraid to be wrong. We have a, we place a pressure on ourselves to, to get everything right. We're afraid to be wrong, afraid to fail. And, you know, those little girls then become women uh, who function in the same way. And then many of those women who have much to contribute won't raise their hand and say, my voice matters and I want to raise it. And they won't run for office uh, because they're afraid to get it wrong. Uh, they're afraid to fail. And, you know, I think that our male counterparts operate with a level of entitlement and self-agency that we can learn from. I think we've allowed entitlement to be a word that's been negatively co-opted, but it is not a bad thing to feel entitled to bring to bear your full contribution to the world and to fight for a more equitable and just world. I think we're all entitled to that. That is just so powerful what you said, just everything. And when thinking of young girls, there's the video of you finding out that you won your congressional primary, which was just truly beautiful. But for me, what was also really iconic from that night is there's a photo of your stepdaughter, Cora, crying with joy. And it was such a reminder of how important it is to show young girls, young women, that you can overcome and break barriers, even when you have people trying to block you at every turn, because your race was not easy and you defied everyone and said, I know that I can win this. I know that I can properly represent this district and I'm doing it. That is a powerful photo. Um, but when I see that photo, I, I know when I ran in the New York Times, people were captioning it with uh, representation matters. But, you know, I don't, Cora is no random little girl. You know, that's my child. And um I think she was uh, crying out of the exhaustion of it all. She was crying because she was proud of me. Uh, she was crying. I was crying because, and in fact, um, the video, uh, that video that went viral of the moment that I learned that I won, what isn't shown in that video are two things. The first thing I did was turn, after I hugged my husband, I had a moment with our daughter and I said, thank you. And I apologize. Because like any other working mom, I have tremendous guilt about the, the small and big moments in her life that I miss. And I, I always tell her that this is about something bigger, you know, than me, than you, than daddy, than all of us. And that's why I'm making this sacrifice. And, you know, I, in that moment, I just said to her, I hope you feel right now that it was worth it. And then um, after that, I dropped to my knees and I prayed and uh, both to God and to my mom. Uh, so it was a very emotional moment, especially because a little known detail, you know, up until uh, that very moment, I thought we had lost. And I had written a speech for the evening and I had said, whatever the outcome of this election, I'm delivering the same speech. And so I was sitting there uh, with uh, someone that I worked very closely with, one of, one of two people in the world that I would ever work with on a speech like this. And I said, I feel like you all know something and you're not telling me. I said, if you already know we've lost, because I was prepared for that. We were down in the polls by 13 points five days before the election. And I said, if you all know that we've lost, you need to tell me because I need time to emotionally digest this before I go out onto the stage. And I was thinking about all the people 
for whom we had given hope or restored their hope for the first time ever in a long time. And I was thinking, I'm going to step out on the stage and I'm going to look into this audience and look into the eyes of someone in that front row. And is the light going to be extinguished behind their eyes? And am I ready for that? And what can I do to keep that light? And so that's everything that I was sitting with. And then when they came and told me that we won and the race was called so early, uh, my predecessor uh, had, he had uh, conceded uh, maybe 45 minutes after the polls closed. And so the fact that we had been down in the polls by 13 points five days before election day, and then we won by a 17 point decisive margin of victory was humbling and overwhelming. And uh, if I'm being totally honest, I don't think until very recently I even gave myself the headspace to be joyful or celebratory because I was just immediately thinking about the gravity of the times we find ourselves and that people uh, were depending on me. But, but that's, that's the story of, uh, of, of election night. So, and, and I think ultimately those polls were wrong, not only because they weren't sampling the electorate that we successfully expanded, um, but the polls were wrong because you can't poll transformation. And there was a transformational uh, paradigm shift that was occurring in the way that elections are run and won. Mm-hmm. We have to make the change we want to see. And that starts with a small step. Even a small dollar donation can make a big wave. Over the course of 2017 and 2018, grassroots donors gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns and organizations through ActBlue's platform. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure. ActBlue's simple and powerful digital fundraising tools empower donors and enable campaigns and organizations big and small to flourish. As a nonprofit and a tech organization, ActBlue does rigorous A-B testing and its tools are optimized for mobile. These innovations are critical for today's candidates and organizations, which is why they know ActBlue is the best choice. That's why ActBlue is the online fundraising platform of choice for thousands of Democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. One of the many things I love about you is you're making sure that you're not the only and you're speaking very openly and honestly about your race. And the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee just announced a rule that vendors can only work with incumbents. And in response to this new rule, you said that with your race, we accomplished something unique and special. But that is not anything I want to be an anomaly. This is what I want to be more of the norm. So can you just tell us more about what you plan to do in your role to make sure that there are more Ayanna Presleys in the future? Well, you know, again, I don't in any way make assumptions about, I don't make assumptions of any bad intent in the rolling out of this policy, but I do have grave concerns for it having an adverse impact, both on the electorate and also on vendors. Um, You know, What I know from my experience is that had I not had the option uh, to engage non-traditional vendors and all or most of my vendors were 
queer women, people of color. And that was important because I needed people that would be sensitive and attuned to uh, gender and racial bias, uh, the nuance of certain things, and who also were, were down to be disruptive and to really challenge the blueprint of how elections are run and won. We invested significantly in ethnic and specialty media, radio, print, television. I didn't do any mainstream ad buys. Um, we invested in Univision and Telemundo, and we grew the Latino vote by 71%. And there were you know, people that thought that would be the death knell of our campaign because the Latino community is 7% of the Massachusetts 7. And so I would not be sitting here if I could not engage innovative, nimble, culturally competent vendors in my race. At the same time, those vendors who took a chance on me, I don't want them to be denied the opportunity to support myself or other incumbents and to be on the DCCC's preferred vendor list. In fact, I had vendors um, that started working with me in my race and they had to drop out because they had uh, heard and know on certain terms that if they continue to work with me, they would be dropped from the preferred vendor list. And so this is a new policy, but it isn't a new practice. And I told those vendors, well, please step away because I did not want to be impeding anyone's ability to provide for their family. So, you know, we need for these vendor contracts to be um, equitable opportunities. We have more diverse candidates running. And so we need to have more diverse vendors. And then also, you know, I was the first uh, person to give the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District a choice in a generation, in 20 years. And so if you're going to make it harder for candidates, um, particularly non-traditional you know, candidates, to run and to win and be able to engage whatever vendors that they want to do that, then you're taking away the choice for the electorate. And you know, I appreciate the, the, the favorable intention of wanting to preserve this fragile democratic majority. And I plan on doing my part to fundraise um, directly for many of these frontline candidates um, because we have to continue to be, we must remain in the Democratic majority. Um, but I, I do think that it is not up to us to take choice away for the electorate. It's my job as an elected official to make the case to the electorate and to do that by doing thoughtful, meaningful, impactful work and being present in the district and, and working in partnership uh, with community. As always, just so well said and thought out. One of the many reasons why I love you. So quickly. I love you back, my fellow <laughs> Senegalese twist sister. Yes. And, we're not, and, we're, and we're not alone. You know, Lena, uh, my comms director, is um, an Afro-Latina. And she's also rocking Senegalese twist. So it, it's a movement. Yes, I love that Lena is team Senegalese twist. Yes, yes. But just as an example, you know, during the campaign, I had to have a conversation with my consultants about my hair. And, you know, again, there are not many vendors that we that would even understand that everything a black woman does, period, and certainly as a candidate, is considered political and understand um, the complexities and the nuance of hair. Yes. Um, you know, so just as one example. So for our listeners, after the Congresswoman won her primary, 
I sent out this tweet basically saying Stacey Abrams was able to win her primary wearing her natural hair. Ayanna Presley won her primary wearing Senegalese twists, also my hairstyle of choice. So can we please stop policing Black women's hair, saying that it is going to put them at a disadvantage and make them not relatable? And whenever I'm lucky to see the congresswoman and get a photo with her, I use the hashtag Team Senegalese Twist. So. <laughs> and, and I love it. And everyone's always mad and, and wants to know why our, our pictures together come out so great. Ashanti, Galinda Carr of Higher Heights is especially bitter about this. So. <laughs> Shout out to Higher Heights for America. We love you, sister. We love Higher Heights. And what's very funny is after our last photo that I posted, I got so many people sending me messages saying, are you all related? You actually look alike in this photo. It's more than Senegalese twist. (laughs) Well, I received that. But also I have to say I'm not alone. You know, know, I, I think, you know, Black Girl Magic takes on many iterations. And so we have sisters that are that are rocking twists. And 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 uh, and and they're in afros and hijabs. We're doing it all right now, you know, from Barbara Lee to Marsha Fudge, uh, and let's not forget Sheila Jackson Lee. Yeah. Um, and and, uh, and before uh, and during Sheila Jackson Lee's early tenure, there was Cynthia McKinney. You know, so there have been many women who have been uh, visually disruptive and sort of challenging these old paradigms about what is professional and what is politically appropriate. Yes, and it's so true because I remember just immediately after you and all of the other historic women were sworn in, so many women on Twitter were saying, today I'm wearing my leather jacket like Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Today I'm rocking my red lip like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on my hoop earrings because I'm dressed like a congresswoman. And I I love seeing those tweets, particularly for women my age, younger women. It shows, okay, I can walk into that room with my leather jacket, my heels, my red lips, my hoop earrings, and I can still get things done. I'm still about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's important that more of us um, take our rightful place, you know, at the table. Um, and shake the table and do that as our authentic selves, whatever that looks like. You know, there are already so many institutionalized and structural barriers to women and women of color and black women running for office. And to your confidence point, women will often discredit and dismiss themselves. And this will seem an improbability because they'll say, I don't have the right degree. I don't have the right clothes. I don't have the right complexion. I don't have the right hair. I don't have the right story. When all you have to do to be qualified to serve is to stand in your truth. You're qualified just based on on the merit of your lived experience. And we need more people bringing that diversity of lived experience to the corridors of power um, uh, and policy and decision-making tables. I love it. And that transitions nicely into our final question, the question that I am asking all of the guests. What advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? Uh, Don't. (laughs) Just be your damn self. (laughs) You know, you were you were good enough. You know, that's the point. You know, my favorite. So for your your audience that might not be aware, I have the humbling uh, honor of my office, Longworth 1108, being the office that was Shirley Chisholm's office. 
She served in the House for eight years, had several offices during that eight-year tenure, but her first office was Longworth 1108. And I, I lobbied hard to get this office. I didn't get it in the lottery, but then a fellow sister colleague, a freshman uh, member in my class, Katie Hill from California, she got the office in the lottery, but then she gifted it to me because she said she was not going to, to be the one that stood in the way of my having Shirley Chisholm's office because everyone knew the impact uh, that she's had on my life. And my favorite quote of hers is that when she was asked how she wanted to be remembered, she said she did not want to be remembered as the first Black woman elected to the House of Representatives, which of course she was, or the first Black woman to pursue the U.S. presidency, which she was, but she wanted to be remembered as, 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 as a Black woman who dared to be herself. And so that is my advice for all the brown girls out there. Dare to be yourself. You are good enough. And if you do that, the universe will conspire in your favor and you will be elevated and moved to wherever you need to be in order to bring to bear your contribution um, to the world. Whew. Amazing, amazing. Congresswoman, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, oh, your advice. I really appreciate it. I know the listeners appreciate it. And we are going to let you go because you're a busy woman and you have some votes to cast. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. And I loved your interview with uh, Stacy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, so I appreciate being a part of this new movement. And, uh, and you call us uh, anytime, okay? That means so much to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, and stay tuned for more. You can find The BGG on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The BGG Guide. You can find out more about what the Congresswoman is up to in Congress on Twitter at Ayanna Presley. And don't forget, follow Wonder Media Network on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMNBG.